Listen now to the word of God. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So reads God's word. When we're presented with a very desirable offer for anything, There are several different ways to say yes, aren't there? At times, it's a very passive yes. That's all that's required. After a meal in a fine restaurant, the waiter may ask, would you like to try our signature hot fudge sundae for dessert? You may just nod with raised eyebrows and expectant smile or you may actually speak aloud yes or even absolutely yes but no action is required except to speak and sit and wait at other times your answer has to be more active in order to communicate a clear yes Your son asks you if you want to play catch. Saying yes, or even absolutely yes, doesn't mean a great deal unless you get up off the couch and get your glove and go outside. Requires action. If your rich uncle, who collects classic cars, walks you into his cavernous garage, surveys his treasures and says, Would you like one of these? You'll need to select the appropriate key and drive off in addition to whatever else you might say for your yes to be considered a real yes. A yes to this question has to be active. And we could go on and on with examples. Keep that in mind as we move into the text this morning. And as we move into the text, we're going to remember where we've come from in order to appreciate what we're reading and seeing here. We have just heard, as Romans chapter 8 has opened, on the heels of having heard about our sin and our need to receive a Savior, and God's having provided a Savior in Christ, a propitiation for our sins, that removes our sins as far from us as the east is from the west and absorbs the wrath of God that they earned. 
We have just heard that in addition to receiving that, and even though in this life we continue to struggle with our sin, deeply with our sin, in fact, it's a life and death battle that continues on while we're still in the flesh. We are doing so, fighting that battle, living under the reign of Christ, the inbreaking of his eternal salvation in the present, here and now. And we've just heard then, as this chapter opens, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, even the ones who are continuing to struggle with their sin, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, such that life eternal is now, now our inheritance. That's where verse 11 finished last Sunday. Now we transition into a new paragraph which really is just a continuation of the old, but a new thought in which we learn that this inheritance that we have in Christ should also make a difference in how we live here and now under the reign of Christ. Up until this point, in chapter 8, the if statements that we've seen several of already, verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, these if statements have been distinguishing between those who have trusted in Christ as Savior and Lord and those who haven't. So attention has not yet been given to the consistency of our behavior in Christ as much as to whether we've actually received him as our sin bearer, as our propitiation. If you've trusted Christ, these things are true of you, and the if doesn't mean that if you're living according to that, then you can have confidence. Just if you've trusted Christ, you have this confidence that there's no condemnation in him. Now, in verses 12 to 17, we're actually turning toward our response and hearing something about what it should look like in the way that we behave. How we should act now that we have received this standing in Christ that has removed us from all condemnation. It's an implicit imperative in this passage, even though there's no imperative sentence, and we'll talk about that as we move into it. Essentially, Paul addresses two points here in this brief portion of the paragraph, verses 12 to 17. You see them in your bulletin. They will be our outline this morning. I'll make a little bit more out of them than I made out of our outline last week, but still just be essentially move through this text as a unit. What we see here in verses 12 and 13 is what we believers in Jesus should always pursue. What believers in Jesus should always pursue. And then in verses 14 to 17, what we believers in Jesus should never forget as we pursue those things. That's essentially what we're covering here. So let's walk through this and be encouraged and strengthened and educated and edified even as we prayed just a moment ago. 
What we believers in Jesus should always pursue, verses 12 and 13. Look at verse 12. So then, brothers, and again, this is that word that's inclusive. We're not reading something into the text by saying brothers and sisters. We're just recognizing how this word would have been understood when it was originally written. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. I'm going to stop there because it sounds like that's just sort of a preparatory statement for what follows that isn't really communicating something new because indeed it is summarizing what we've already learned. But in context here, it's adding something and we need to pause and capture what we're hearing here in order to get off on the right foot in this section of Paul's letter. Some say Paul should have finished his saying here with these words, but to the Spirit, to live according to the Spirit. So they're suggesting, and I think some translations might even do this. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, but to the Spirit, to live according to the Spirit. Except that Paul doesn't include that in his letter, that latter phrase. That's a point that needs clarification. Some commentators point to the absence of this insinuated phrase as an actual, what's called a provocative absence. It's an absence that your ear just naturally wants to hear, and the fact that it's not there actually points us towards something that we should note. Paul's intent here, then, doesn't seem to be to identify two different potential masters and then identify which one of them we're obligated to serve. He's already really done that back in chapter 6, headed into chapter 7. So he's not identifying the flesh on the one hand and the spirit on the other and saying, we're not obligated to this one, we're actually obligated to this one. That's assumed, but he's making a bit different point. And the absence of that phrase that we identified is what points us in that direction. So Paul's intent doesn't seem to be to identify two potential masters and then identify which one we're obligated to serve or even which one we'd be better off serving. His intent seems to be to clarify that even though we're still subject to death in this world, as we just heard in verse 11, we have no obligation to live according to the flesh. We have no obligation to live in that realm of death. We've actually been freed from it to live in the realm of righteousness. So, yeah, this body of death, this, this body of flesh is still subject to death. Verse 11, but we have no obligation to honor that in how we live. There's more what Paul is saying. Similar, but clarified by the very absence of not setting it up as one more comparison, but just affirming our freedom from sin in Christ. So his intent is to clarify that even though we're still subject to death, we have no obligation at all to live according to it. We're free from that bondage in Christ, and he's covered that already in great detail. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, and even continuing on through that chapter. The next statement here isn't so much drawing a conclusion then as it is offering an explanation for this very statement we just made. We see that four that is there, and we see several verses in a row, beginning with four, and usually that means here's the basis of what you just heard. This time, though, the four seems to have a little bit different emphasis. It's more, here's an explanation. 
of what you just heard. Not here's the foundation for it. Here's what it means for you. And that's where Paul goes as he moves into the second part of verse 12. How could we have still, how could we still be debtors to that which leads to death if we've already received that which leads to life? So he's saying, turn away from those things which lead to death and give yourself to those things which lead to life. Live in the freedom that you've been offered. Again, a, a, a statement we've heard, an idea we've heard, a, a charge we've heard over and over again through this letter, but each time in a subtly new context that adds more and more to it each time we hear it. Turn away from those things which lead to death and give yourself to those things which lead to life. Give yourselves to the pursuit of that which reflects the glory of the inheritance that you have received by faith in Christ. And we're moving toward the explicit mention of that inheritance even as we move through this introduction to this portion of the paragraph. Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That point has been proven. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Once again, why we are taking such a detailed look at this is because this could mean something somewhat different than it initially sounds like unless we put it in the context of what Paul is saying at this stage in his letter. It's especially in the second half of verse 13 here where we, where we hear an imperative starting to be implied, where we hear an action that's being called for, a response, a behavior that should be reshaped by our faith in Christ. And it's not a straightforward command, as we already said. It's more implicit but it's not telling us what it might initially sound like it's telling us. It's not telling us what it may sound like. It's telling us, namely, that we, we... It's not telling us that we earn life by putting to death the deeds of our body. If it sounds like it's saying that, if you put this to death, you will live. So you're putting to death of your flesh. You're putting to death of your sin is that which produces life rather than faith in Christ being that which produces life. This could be a mistaken understanding and at a very strategic point if we're not careful. It's not telling us that we earn life by putting to death the deeds of the body, rather Paul is affirming that if we've been freed from sin and death by faith in Christ, we can and we should live like that's true. We should be living into the freedom that he has purchased for us. Again, language we've heard as we move through the letter to this point. As we do that, as we live into the truth of our freedom that we have in Christ... We're showing our agreement with the fact that we've been freed from sin by the merciful and sovereign grace of God in Christ. We're speaking an active yes to the beautiful provision that God has given us in Christ. And that's what Paul is calling us to here. That's the imperative. That's the clarification he wants us to hear. We are saying by our behavior, by our pursuit of the freedom that we have, 
We are saying yes to the salvation we've received, and we're agreeing and acting on that basis, just like those few scenarios we used as we began this morning. We might actually say it in a different way as well, borrowing from the history of Israel. If, like Israel did in the early stages and throughout the Exodus, if we'd rather go back to slavery in Egypt rather than follow God as he leads in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, Exodus 13, if we'd rather go back to Egypt where we remember the food and the ease of life, even though we were crumbling under the weight of slavery, if we'd rather go back there, then we're showing that we don't really trust him. But if we press on in this journey across the wilderness, facing each challenge, believing that God will meet us in it and finish the work he started in us, then we'll find him to be faithful to every promise that he's made to us and will surely inherit the blessings of his salvation. That's what Paul's talking about in verses 12 and 13. Saying an active yes to the salvation we've received and trusting God even in the midst of the hardships, the ongoing battles with sin, the vulnerability that we feel, the desire to say, wow, this Christian life is harder than I expected. It was easier to live without Christ. How many of us have heard people say that? The demands that this faith puts upon me, are they're, they're burdensome. It's like, oh, you don't understand the salvation that's yours in Christ. It's one of the reasons Paul is making this so clear with the Roman church as he moves through it. He's not just going to assume that he gets, they, they get this point because they've heard him previously say, live into this freedom. He's coming at it from meticulously crafted angles and hitting it over and over again lest they misunderstand the gospel. And here he's saying, you've been freed from bondage to sin. Live into that freedom and recognize the joy that it brings, knowing full well that God is going to be faithful to his promises, even if from your own experience at the moment, it appears as though you're fighting a losing battle. Is that good news this morning? Amen. It's very good news. And it comes to us from the very pages of God's word. So, as one commentator wrote, the relationship between the indicative in verse 12 and the implicit imperative in verse 13, making this reminder that we're not obligated to live according to the flesh and then moving into this subtle command to pursue the freedom that we have in Christ, as we move from the indicative to the imperative in verses 12 and 13, we should not hear this as calling us to something that gains a reward or earns an outcome. We're not earning something by this salvation. Rather, we should hear this and hear in his words as an ongoing yes to God's work in us a call to affirm his action on our behalf. The obedience that's being lived here is an affirmation that says, yes, I'm entering into the salvation of the Lord and all the blessings that come along with it. I'm not earning his favor or his salvation, 
by my obedience. I'm just agreeing with his salvation by my obedience. That, my friends, is what every believer should pursue. That is the obedience of faith that Paul is talking about as he brackets this letter. The obedience that just affirms the saving work already done in us by faith in Christ. Now, what we believers in Jesus should never forget as we pursue this walk with him. We pursue this walk because that's just who we are in Christ. That's why we do it. We're not doing it in fear of losing it if we don't do it perfectly. We're doing it because we've received it, we understand that, and we're entering into it as a yes and an amen to what God has done. We pursue it because that's just who we are in Christ. We're not just his purchased possession or, or merely the recipients of his benevolent blessing and mercy. Now, by faith in him, we become a family with him. And we're living into that status as family. When we receive his spirit, we're adopted into his family. The loftiest family, the tightest family, the most exclusive family, the most unique family that could possibly exist. And we're being adopted into it by faith in Christ. We're being drawn into the inner circle of the Trinity, the one true and eternal family that has always existed and that called into existence this world in which we live. Peter described it in almost incomprehensible terms when he said we're becoming partakers of the divine nature. There's many people in our day who want to consider themselves a god or even if they deny that they're a god, they want the privileges of being a god. But in Christ, what we actually have is incorporation in the family of God that makes us participants, partakers of the divine nature doesn't turn us into God. In fact, it's the only reliable way to remind us that we're not. Because this is entirely a manifestation of His grace that saves us and incorporates us into His family and makes us His children. It's an overwhelming description. When we receive his spirit, we're adopted into his family, which is the loftiest, tightest, most exclusive, most unique family circle that could possibly exist. We're named along with Jesus as sons of God. Verse 14, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. As the passage continues, are children of God. I think the son language there is used not to be gender specific nearly so much as to tie in the reality of our standing in this family with the standing Jesus already has as the eternal son. Because Paul himself transitions to children as he moves on into verses 16 and 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Jumping to verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. There's our title this morning. An amazing statement. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. His indwelling presence that we read about, heard about back in verse 9 of this very chapter, his indwelling presence with us makes this objectively clear. We are the children of God. The Spirit of God inhabits us by faith in Christ. And then his enabling of us to put to death the deeds of the body, to begin winning the war against sin, not flawlessly. We've seen that so clearly in chapter 7. But as he enables us to start winning this battle, start winning battles within this war, with the promise that that effort will never be wasted because that salvation that right now is showing itself in situational victories that begin to accumulate and become characteristic of our life will be our inheritance once this life is finished. We will win the war. But there is a war between now and then, just like there was a wilderness to cross for Israel between Egypt and the Promised Land. His indwelling presence makes our status as children of God objectively clear and his enabling us to put to death the deeds of the body make this experientially clear. We're starting to see, wow, God really is at work here. He really is helping me to say no to sin. And yeah, I stumbled again. But this reality is truer of me than this one. I am a citizen of the kingdom. I will continue fighting this battle until I start seeing more consistent victories. And I'll do so with the assurance that one day I will be free of this war and I will be victorious in it. Wow, is that good news. Many of us need that news this morning right where we're seated, don't we? We need that reminder. So the Spirit helps us to know that we've become children of God. He bears witness with our spirit, and our spirit starts to say, Amen. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And I'm going to live into that. The Spirit helps us to know that we've become God's children, verse 17. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That, again, is just outside of our realm of thinking, even though we hear it. We we don't pause and state that in common vernacular very often in order to appreciate what we're being told here. If we're children of God, then we're heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Jesus is our brother, not just our Savior and Lord in this family. Joint heirs with him makes us siblings. He is our brother, not just our savior. That is a stunning reality. It doesn't diminish the glories of the second person of the Trinity. It magnifies the inconceivable impact of his incarnation into this world. That he is born into the flesh in order to become like us and experience life the way we experience it. And then 
through his sacrifice, his death, and his resurrection as the first fruits of our saving belief through the Holy Spirit that comes to us, that's now moving into the central focus in Paul's letter here. We have the down payment on the eternal future that's ours with him, not just sort of a, a little taste that is in advance, but actually the inbreaking of that coming kingdom present with us now so that we will never be less a part of the kingdom than we currently are. And throughout the course of the remainder of this life, we will be growing in our experience of that reality to the point where when Christ returns, we will enter into it fully. That's the inheritance of the believer. That's where Paul is headed in this chapter 8 that is such a glorious text of Scripture. And by the way, our discussions and preaching team this past week have lengthened by one week our stay in Romans 8. Kip said, I can't handle the two passages we identified to finish out chapter 8, so we're going to shorten each of those, and I get to come back in and preach more chapter 8 at the end. <laughs> I think Kip was just being kind, honestly. But we will take five weeks to move through this chapter because of the very things we're hearing here and now. What a glorious inheritance is ours in Christ. So Jesus is our brother, not just our Savior and Lord. Provided, verse 17 continues, provided, that's just another if, by the way. It's a bit expanded of a word, but it's, it's, it's another if. If we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That's how Paul finishes this particular paragraph. We heard back in chapter 6, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, and also in a resurrection like his, chapter 6, verse 5, then we're united with him in a family like his. We're united like, with him as family forever. If we endure with him, if we suffer with him, we know that we will enter into his glory with him. Again, suffering not as an earning of that glory, but suffering as a manifestation of that glory. Going through seasons of suffering and saying yes to my salvation. I will endure this and even receive it with joy, as James 1 talks about, because I recognize that it's only through suffering with my Savior in a fallen world that is just as opposed to me now that I'm in him as it was opposed to him when he was here. As I enter into the suffering that results from that, I'm being perfected in his likeness if I respond to it in faith, trusting in the promises of God during these seasons of suffering, so that his character is formed within me as I move through it. That's what Paul is talking about here. Again, an affirmation of yes to the salvation that we have received and a yes that shows itself in faithful endurance through suffering, longing more for the outcome of Christ-likeness that happens through them than for the freedom from them that would make this a bit easier life. I would rather have the fruit of suffering than freedom from it. When that's present, that can only be present by the Spirit. That's the Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we're children of God, giving us that yearning, that desire, 
So Paul's not saying earn it by your suffering. He's saying let your response to suffering reflect this. And as it does, you will gain greater confidence through that process that you are entering into the glory of your salvation. Now we left out verse 15 as we moved through this. Verse 15 is slipped into the middle of this statement, 14 to 17, as a sort of explanation of a different sort or an explanation not unlike the previous explanation we've talked about. Verse 14, to lead into 15, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. And we'll stop there for the moment. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. This isn't just the nature of what we receive when the Spirit of God makes his residence with us. We, we don't experience, it's, we know we don't experience fear. We, we're not free from fear any longer. We still experience fear. Surely, we still live in fearful circumstances. So when he says, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear in the midst of trial and hardship, we might say, within the context of this letter, we're not hearing from this that we have been freed from fear in our relationship with Christ, freed entirely from it such that we never experience fear again once we've trusted Christ as Savior. Surely we still live in fearful circumstances. Surely we're still battling against the enemy that's determined to kill us, as we saw in chapter 7. That sin personified, strengthened by the command of God's word, by the very law of God itself, wages war with us even after we've trusted Christ as Savior, still trying to prove our profession false and bring us down to death. That's what we saw in chapter 7, remember. So surely we still live in fearful circumstances, battling this enemy that's bent on our destruction, an enemy that Paul has just warned us about again right here in verse 13. Even so, Paul writes, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Somehow we're freed from fear, even while we still experience it and battle against it. Then he gives the contrast in the second half of that verse. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That is one glorious affirmation from Scripture. And my friends, I just want to say, cutting to the chase here, that I don't believe this is the gentle, sweet picture it might seem to be, even though it includes that gentle, sweet picture. I don't believe it's just a little child cooing Papa while he's being caressed by his father. Surely it is that, but surely it is also more. Surely it's a picture of tender family intimacy, but it's a picture of vastly more than that. I think there's reason 
why Paul set up this expression of warm intimacy by making explicit reference to fear and drawing an explicit contrast to it. And I think there's reason why he followed it by talking yet more about sufferings, as we'll see in verse 18 and begin next week's passage. In the face of such a fierce enemy as sin, which can take our life if we take it lightly, we have an alternative available to us. An opportunity to lean into our adopted sonship, our status as family, to lean into that and cry out to our devoted Father, the very word Paul selected here, to cry out to our devoted Father for protection and deliverance. Just as we saw Jesus doing the first time we heard him use this address to the Father in prayer. That was Matthew 14, I'm sorry, Mark 14, verse 36 where Jesus in the garden, sweating as though great drops of blood, called out to Abba, Father, and said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not, not my will, but yours be done. I will trust you in the midst of the suffering, modeling for us exactly what we're being called to here in this text. Jesus crying out to Abba, in the fullness of his humanity, even while in the fullness of his deity, feeling the weight of the moment and presenting one final opportunity to the Father to say, is there another way? But proving his glorious and eternal sonship by saying, but I want your will, not mine. The very same confession, by the way, that is best to come to our lips in the midst of such suffering. We will never know the full suffering of Christ on the cross or the anguish he felt in the garden. But we know the scenarios that present themselves to us and the temptations to cower and back away from the trial at the moment. We need to cry out to our Heavenly Father at such times. Just as Jesus did. And follow his example, saying, Not my will, but yours be done. Our status as children of God and the inner witness of the Spirit are just what we need to prevail in our battle against sin. And I think that's what Paul is talking about here. And just as we might enjoy warm fellowship with our Abba, Father, in times of sweetness and peace, 
We also cry out to him just as Jesus did in times of desperation and of need. And at such times we cry out, Abba, Father. When we feel like we're losing our battle with sin. The victory purchased for us by Christ and his faithful obedience. And just like a loving father does at such times, for Jesus dispensing angels from heaven to minister to him, the text says. Just like a loving father does, he meets us in our suffering and enables our endurance to the end. Assuring us that we'll surely receive his full and final salvation as we press on trusting him in the midst of this hardship. So there's a range of meaning in the powerfully intimate address that Paul identifies here. Thus, some suggest that a simple daddy or papa doesn't really capture the full range of meaning in this address. Others suggest perhaps, perhaps dear father is best. And I really do like that one. Dear father, just as so many of us use even today to open our prayers, dear heavenly father, calling out to Abba at a time of need. And friends, we, we need to hold on to this reminder. We need to hold on to the reminder that we're given here, the reminder of our standing with him as our truest comfort, our truest encouragement, our truest reassurance, our truest hope, calling on our dear Father with full confidence of intimate fellowship, full confidence of his divine presence and power with us in our need, whether we're fighting hard in the midst of a life-threatening battle with sin or whether we're drinking deeply during a season of undistracted worship. We still call out to our dear Father to meet us and sustain us and carry us and walk us through that season. This, then, this, is our inheritance in Christ. Our inheritance that comes to us even here and now while we still await its full deliverance. This is the inheritance Paul's talking about here. Our dear Father is with us at every moment through the presence of his indwelling spirit provided for us by the Sacrifice of his only begotten son. And this will be so. It will be so for every believer in Christ until we're glorified with him. To use the language of verse 17, until we're glorified with him in his eternal kingdom and receive that salvation in all of its fullness. Friends, pray with me now that this will be our experience. And as we pray, musicians can return to the platform and communion servers to the front. Heavenly Father, dear Father, we do confess our need.
Even after trusting Christ as Savior, the fierceness of the battle with sin can sometimes make us wonder whether there's any work of the Spirit in us at all. And the answer at such times is not to turn our attention toward the convincing nature of our own actions and obedience as we could be so tempted to do if we just read this very text lightly. But Father, our desire at such times is to cling with all of our might, all of the might that you provide to the finished work of Christ that has been accomplished on our behalf and is the only work that can save us and reconcile us to you with the result that we are adopted into your family and enjoy the fullness of the salvation that you've provided. Father, as we confessed at the beginning, we need this today. We need it. Every single one of us needs this reminder from your word. And I pray, Father, that in response to your word, through the work of your spirit, enabling our obedience of faith, through this act of remembrance that we are about to participate in, celebrating, proclaiming the body and blood of the Lord that has purchased this salvation for us, I pray, Lord God, that as we go forth from this place at the end of this hour, that we would go forth living lives that say an active yes in every respect to the salvation that is ours by faith in Christ. It's in his name and toward that end that we pray. Amen.